2: where i'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous
1: US China relationship find face off wherever you get your podcasts i'm
2: Clark Sheffield this is jace mattinson and you are listening to the earn and invest podcast
1: we are voyeurs by nature which may sound salacious on first blush, but watching others can be instructive. How many times have you failed at doing something till you watch someone do the exact same thing on YouTube? Money is a taboo subject. We don't like to talk about it, and we certainly don't like to discuss our net worth. Yet, yet our tendency towards voyeurship runs hot in this arena. We want to look under the hood and see how others do it. What does it take to be a millionaire today? How do others get there? What did they invest in? Well, the guys I'm going to interview today are going to share those secrets, the secrets of millionaires unveiled. Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson are co hosts of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where they interview everyday millionaires. To date, they have interviewed more than 300 millionaires with a combined net worth of over a billion dollars. Clark and Jace, I try to have you on at least once a year. Welcome back to Earn and Invest. Jace, I'm going to start with you. You recently interviewed a person worth $320 million. Is that your highest net worth individual to date?
2: Yes, it is. That is the highest. 320 plus million and the value of his company could put him potentially over that. We Clark and I wanted to interview somebody worth 200 for our 200th episode and we ended up finding somebody that was 300 plus.
1: <laughs> I was about to say, Jace, there's probably a sprinkling, right? Like, so it's easy to find people in the one to five range, and then you occasionally have some outliers. But I imagine people over a 100 million net worth is not so easy.
2: Yeah, no, I've, I've, I, yeah, you're right. It's not so easy. Clark and I have been lucky enough to come across a few of them. Luckily, specifically for the podcast and just some some groups who've been around. But it's not so much just finding that person, but also them being willing to share as well.
1: Clark, let's go back and I want to retell your story. How did you two hook up and start the podcast? Where did the idea originally come from?
0: So Jason, and I both served a church service mission in Bulgaria for a couple of years and then went to BYU for school and undergrad. So we knew of each other, didn't know each other on that church service mission, but knew of each other, connected through mutual friends there, and then just kept up the connection. I did an internship in Dallas. Chase was starting a full time job in Dallas. And so we just, we, we lived together for a summer, became friends, started talking personal finance, jobs, careers, investing, and then just decided to start it. So the initial thought was when we had both started working and making money, we were investing in Our 401ks, and then we're like, all right, well, what's next? And we kind of started talking IRAs, and then we started talking HSAs. But then it was like, hey, what do you do? What's the order of operations, if you will? You know, where do you invest your next dollar? And so, you know, we would have these conversations between ourselves. We'd have these conversations between a few friends, maybe our fathers, but we didn't really know anybody else or how anybody else was doing it. And so that's kind of initially was the allocation piece that started this you know how do how do millionaires do it how did they invest where did they prioritize their investments and then from that the stories have become really valuable i think we probably both now enjoy hearing the stories and i think a lot of our listeners do they're kind of split into those two buckets of allocation and stories but now the stories are just hey what did this person do how did they get started mistakes advice what's you know, what do they wish they would have done differently? This guy was a fireman or a custodian or a dentist or a doctor. Just hearing all the unique perspectives now is what is, what is more interesting, I think, to us and probably most of our listeners.
1: Jace, talk about that a little bit. I mean, clearly, when you started this, you were like, I want to look under the hood. I want to see how to get there. Is the draw different for you, too, now as you've been through interviewing 300 millionaires?
2: Yeah, I think Clark hit the nail on the head. The intent was to understand the portfolio allocation on a broader level, because the data and the things and the people that we were around was was so small. And then the, the stories have become invaluable. I mean, I love connecting with people. I love learning about them, what makes them tick, how they think. And through the podcast, especially with these millionaires, specifically as it relates to their financial life, but also in other facets of their life, we've been able to to really take a nice peek under the hood. And I think, you know, looking at their portfolio, and one thing too, Clark and I hope to do over the years is track some of these millionaires and look at the portfolio changes, you know, over the decades. Clark and I are both still young in our early 30s. And so plan on doing this for a really long time and being able to understand kind of these portfolio movements. And, you know, obviously a lot of financial advisors and financial institutions have some of this data to, to some degree as well, but it's just not shared. They can't, right? They've got fiduciary responsibilities for confidentiality, whereas, you know, ours is volunteer. We don't pay these guests, you know, they come on volunteer this information, but it's something that that we're able to to do and kind of mash up and kind of track and see what happens, you know, through a COVID, through a, if we were Ryan, if we did this 20 years ago, we would have been able to go through the dot-com boom and bust. We would have been able to go through, you know, 08 and what happened with everyone's portfolios then and what changes right now, we've just gone through COVID. So we've been able to kind of have some of those conversations with these millionaires of, Hey, did you change your philosophy? Did you put more in cash? Like what happened was a real small, you know, two month or one month blip in the market for a lot of them. But we also have seen some interesting strategies around that. We're also on the rise of some alternative investments, specifically crypto and some other things. And I think these things will be interesting to see what plays out just for me personally how millionaires go and approach it. What does the 21st century millionaire look like compared to maybe what we had grown up with or thought, you know, of the millionaire from, you know, the nineties or the eighties or the seventies that built their wealth.
1: Clark, that's an interesting question. I mean, you've now had the opportunity. I know you've done some repeat interviews or at least kept in touch with people. Answer that question that Jace just asked. I mean, how do you think the vision of wealth has changed maybe through the decades but certainly in the last few years as we've had the up and down in the pandemic have you noticed that people are approaching their finances differently
0: so a couple of different things i think first of all we're seeing real estate a lot more than we probably did when thomas stanley wrote his book millionaire next door right i think a lot of that there was less real estate and this is probably the thing that kind of cracks us up the most is people ride in and be like hey stop interviewing these real estate guests or these people that are invested in real estate. Like (laughs) I'm not invested in real estate. Can you get me more people with market investments? And I mean, first of all, we don't, you know, we're not trying to find one way or the other, just people who write in or people that we connect to. Of course, we're trying to highlight every story, but the funny thing to me is probably 70% of our millionaires are invested in real estate. When I say real estate, I mean outside of their primary home as well, right? They have some second property, the Airbnb, they're in a syndication, they have a rental property, they house hack, whatever it is. And so that's, I think that's shifted from the millionaire next door time. I mean, I think real estate's really picked it up in the last 20 years. And we see that most of our millionaires are invested more than the majority of our millionaires are invested in real estate and the stock market, right? And then you have the people that are just real estate and you have the people that are just stock market. But I think that started to shift. I think the allocation towards and what Jace alluded to is alternative investments. People are dabbling in different things. You have people collecting baseball cards or sports cars. You have cars. You have watches. You have, I think people are just starting to diversify. Is it changing because of COVID? Yes and no. I mean, we interviewed a few people that said, hey, when the market went down, I jumped all in, right? That's what most of the millionaires that we were interviewing during that time, most, I guess, I mean, seven out of 10, 70% of them were into the market. We're trying to get more aggressive into the market when they saw it was down. But I don't think COVID, Jay's correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think many of our millionaires said, whoa, whoa, like I'm pulling out of the market. I'm totally changing my asset allocation, right? Because of COVID. I think COVID caused people to be more aggressive into the market, if anything.
2: Yeah, I think think you're right that more got aggressive, but it also caused a lot to rethink about their, you know, their portfolio, right? We'd have been on a 10 year bull market. A lot of investors hadn't experienced any type of pullback. You know, I remember having a conversation with Clark in January, February when coronavirus was, start. you know, this is back in, I guess, beginning of 2020 was, man, do we sell a little bit? It seems like this thing's really going to, you know, market volatility is going crazy. Like you're going to, I've never done that. Right. but I had that conversation, and something that we we discussed a little bit, and ultimately I didn't decide to. But on the flip side of that, Clark, you know, I know Clark went really aggressive with some with some travel, you know, stocks, just to see what would happen. But back to this fundamental shift of of millionaires, I think there's a a big theme that's transpiring. I think, you know, for the baby boomer generation, and maybe even some that, that came right behind them, there was this pull, right. To essentially try to invest and earn and make as much money as possible and work till, you know, a retirement age, quote unquote. And I, I think you're seeing a, a very different approach from the next generation. And it, you know, obviously we see this fire movement and we see impact investing. And I think people are thinking about their investments, not necessarily, Hey, how can I get the biggest return? what things am I passionate about? What things do I care about? You know, what cons- what things am I concerned with in my own life that I can put my money towards, get a return, but also feel proud, feel that I can be behind that investment, you know, touch it and feel a little bit. Clark alluded to real estate being much more prevalent. I think it's much easier. You know, there's things that have dem- democratized the, the ability to purchase into large syndications without being accredited investors, which, you know, for the longest time, some of these investments, we're, 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 so far out of reach for the common public, but now because of technology and some, some regulation changes, we're, we're able to, to invest in those kind of things, no matter what your income or net worth level is.
0: Well, and I think just building off of that, it's about passivity, right? People are looking for passive income streams. And I don't think that was as big of a thing, right? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the nineties and even the early two thousands, right. I think now, And a lot of it's dangerous because like Chase just said, you're on a 10, 12 year bull. And so people think whatever they buy, it just keeps going up and all the passive income is always going to be there and the stock portfolio is going to grow and whatever I put in Robinhood, it grows, right? But I think that's the mindset shift too is, hey, I'm looking for passive income because what matters to me is my time, my ability to connect with my friends and family and to travel. And I want experiences and I can't do that working in this corporate environment until I'm 65. So I think people are looking for alternative ways to make money.
1: Clark, do you think that's an effect of the FIRE movement, or is that a generational effect of the millennials and Gen Zers just valuing different things?
0: I think it's both. I think it's both. I mean, I think more people have caught the wave because of the FIRE movement, right? But I think there's still a lot of people that wouldn't consider themselves as part of the FIRE movement, or at least the retirement early aspect. I think a lot of people consider themselves financially, or the goal to be financially independent. But I think a lot of it's a, a generational thing too. I, I think you just don't see as many people sitting there working for the same company for 30 years. And in my parents' generation, right? I mean, that was that's how it was. You worked for one, two, three companies, you were loyal. You were loyal, loyal to your employer, your employer was loyal to you. And I think millennials are just willing to move around jobs. They want different experiences, live in different places. They you know, you know They can grow their income moving around. So I think it's both. I think it's all those things. And then I think it's the bull market. I think all those things kind of weigh into each other and drive that.
1: Jace, we've batted around the names Stanley and Danko. They were the ones who wrote The Millionaire Next Door. You and I both have also interviewed Chris Hogan, Everyday Millionaires. Has the nature of millionaires changed? I mean, the picture that both of them really painted were these either W-2 employees or small business people living understated lives and quietly accumulating millions is that what we're seeing today still
2: I think a lot of the fundamentals are still there I mean you still need to live on less than you make and you still need to figure out how to generate a return from that money that's causing that differential between what you make and what you, what you spend you know just in in general going back to some of the research that that Thomas Stanley you know put together and that Chris Hogan has in, in these books, you know, one thing that's that's interesting that, that Clark and I have seen is, and we always kind of talk about this when we go on, on shows, is there's been a lot of millionaires that either have retired and not paid off their mortgage or definitely have the funds to pay off their mortgage and have not much more than we thought. I think that's a, an interesting trend among some of the ones that we've interviewed and I think the diversification of investments, which goes back to the fact that I think people are, are, are getting behind their money and making sure that to some degree that they have a say in in how their money is utilized and invested in, in things that they're passionate about much more than maybe the research would have you know told us back then. Granted, there's a lot more opportunity and technology's added so many opportunities for us to be able to invest in these things at the click of a button. You know, I can get on Robinhood right now and buy a crypto. By some crypto, right? That didn't exist, you know, 20, 25 years ago. So I think that the fundamentals are, are still the same overall in terms of like saving, investing, but the vehicles of which that's done by. And some of the things, you know, we talk about all these millionaires being super frugal. And I think to some degree, a lot of them are, but we've also had a lot of millionaires on the show where the mindset's different. It's not so much, Hey, I'm fixed on this fixed income. It's, Hey, what other side hustles, what other investments can I can I do that generate some of that passive income that Clark alluded to or, or generate additional income, you know, in your pro- former profession is very common for people to moonlight or to pick up an additional gig here or there and you know be a medical administrator or do these kinds of things to increase income. And I think that this generation and the millionaires today. Are finding those other other ways of income we always heard like hey there's three to seven streams of income an average million or whatever but nobody really knew what that meant right it was always kind of hearsay like well i mean it's obvious of a business owner and then he's on three properties or something but now we can quantify that a lot more hey this guy's got these kinds of income and it, it's very easy to to get a lot of these streams of income compared to what it used to be
1: Jace, do you think the difference also has to do with the new digital economy? I mean, basically one thing that COVID certainly accelerated, but we were seeing anyway, is that a lot of people are finding that they can make a digital living where it was harder five, 10 years ago.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, you're going to see, I think, you know, we talk about geo-arbitrage and we talk about all these different ways to earn income. I mean, software engineers can work wherever. I mean, we have a massive amount of the workforce that essentially is location independent. You know, I think for, for the early 2000s, getting on the internet and getting a, an Amazon store or a Facebook store, whatever, was very popular amongst that nomad, digital nomad community. And they all went and lived, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them went and lived in like Southeast Asia. Some of these, you know, low cost countries, ran their businesses and, you know, made it, somewhat popular and now with COVID and just technology in general. I mean a lot of these professions and jobs can be done in, you know, behind a computer and with very little travel and can be done, you know, in any location wherever anyone pleases. You're seeing the the technology just disrupt complete, you know, industries like Uber, for example, where now somebody doesn't even need to be at a job in a typical nine to five. They can go and work for all sorts of different companies as a contractor and making it. And we've got a guy coming on here pretty soon on the show. He's, he, he's a millionaire. He's been an Uber driver. You know, he make all of his money from being an Uber, but that that's like a big part of his chunk of change is being an Uber driver.
1: Clark, I feel like we've been dancing around this subject of technology. You guys have mentioned Robin Hood. You've mentioned Uber. One thing that I think is different every year we talk is the explosion of fintech. How do you think fintech plays a role in these millionaires' lives? And I think you alluded to this idea that it also could be dangerous at points.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's important. I mean, I think tracking net worth has become a bigger thing. I mean, it's a little hard because we interview millionaires who, who think, and, you know, think about their net worth and track it. So it's a little bit biased probably to say, oh, everybody who's good with their money tracks their net worth. But I think it's easier. I think technology has come a long way and it's helped you manage finances. It's helped you, I mean, it's just easier. It's amazing what you can do on your phone, right? I mean, it's amazing that you can even check your bank account whenever you want on your phone. You can deposit checks on your phone. I mean, it's all right there. So just back to Jace's point, it, it allows you to leave. It allows, Technology allows you to pivot and be dynamic in, in what you're doing.
1: One thing we alluded to earlier, Jace, was the fact that, you interview a lot of millionaires but occasionally you'll interview some eight or nine figure millionaires as opposed to the typical seven figure millionaire. Is there a big difference in their personalities, their investments, the way they look at money?
2: I think the big difference is typically those that have a nine figure net worth have substantial ownership in a business and have substantial income from that business, right? Part of their valuation of that business is is in their net worth and t- On a large scale, a good chunk of their net worth is in that business. The income that comes off that business also allows them to diversify and invest in all sorts of different things if they choose. One of them in one case has. In another case, he has a majority of his wealth still tied up in the business and or real estate affiliated with his business. So... the. Those are two things on the, on the investment side, right? They still, a couple of them still have, you know, traditional 401k and they still have some of those investments, but they've got a majority of their money in that business or entities affiliated with that business. I think the one major, major difference that that we've seen with those, and I won't even just classify those with the nine figure net worth, but just on the higher net worth spectrum is they are very intentional about goal setting and accomplishing those goals. And they are extremely focused on getting to those different rungs and steps. And, and it's not just financial, it's everything in their life. I mean, one of the, the nine figure ones I happen to 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 know him pretty well. And and Clark's gotten to know him as well. And I think by far of anyone I've ever met, he is the best goal setter and tracker of anyone I've ever met. And it shows. I mean, he's extremely successful and talented in that. I mean, he is a master goal setter and it shows with his net worth and it shows with other facets of his life.
0: Yeah. I think that's the big thing. I think the people that are over 5 million, let's call it, I think it's because they are intentionally, and Dr. You may be the one that was a little bit different in the sense that you okay. were not like, so money focused, right? Cause I remember you talking about once you win the game, like you won the game, but Most everyone, maybe 90% of the people we've interviewed that are over 9 million, even over Chase, probably like three or four, to be honest, it's because they want to be, you know, like they're, I mean, everybody wants to be, but they're intentionally trying to do it and trying to grow their net worth. And I think others, you get to a million, two million, and you, we say, Hey, what's next for you, right? Like you're at a million, you're at 2 million. What's next. And a lot of the answer we hear when we ask that for somebody who's at a million or two, I don't know you know, like, yeah, I'd like to get to three or like, you know, I'd like to grow my, you know, my real estate income right now is at 30 grand for the year. I'd like to get that up to a hundred and then maybe think about retiring early, right? Like they don't quite know you, we ask somebody over five, like, Hey, what's the goal? It's like, I want to get to 10. I want to get to 20. Right. Like it, it, and that's what Jace means on the goal. I think it's just, if they're higher, it's because they want to be in there and that's what they're driving for. You know, I think the one's worth one or two. And I don't think there's a right way to do it. It's just to each their own. Some people want to grow the net worth as high as they can get it. And others say, look, I get to two, I can do whatever I want. I live off of $50,000 a year. I don't need any more than that. So, you know, what's the point?
2: To, To piggyback on that just a little bit too. I think these that, that have gone after, you know, these, these higher net worths or have continued to try to grow a lot of them, kind of get to that point maybe where they did have a goal. And then they go through this phase of like, well, what am I going to do now? Like they've been grinding for so long. And I think even our, the baby boomer generation experiences a little bit in trying to just retire because they don't know anything different and they don't have anything else to move to. And so as we've seen those that have built that higher net worth, maybe they are completely financially independent at 2 million or 10 million or a hundred million. What does that transition look like in moving to something else instead of that grind to get to that point as well.
1: Clark, I've asked you this before, but I'm going to ask again, does happiness correlate with net worth? So we have a bunch of people who are in that one to 2 million range, and then we have some outliers who are, let's say, 8 million and above. And again, now you guys have even had people at the two or 300 million level. Do you see that more wealth correlates with more happiness? No. No,
0: but I think there's a certain level where it does. And I, I, you know, we've had a lot of millionaires that are at one, two, three. And I've said, Hey, you were in debt $300,000 or you were in debt or whatever. You had a net worth of 100000 Are you happier now with this money? Are you happier with the passive income? A lot of people say yes. A lot of people say yes. And, and, you know, they qualify that and say, Well, it's more that I'm comfortable and I don't have to worry. Right. I think that's what brings the happiness is not worrying. And they talk about, early on in their life when they were worrying all the time, they didn't know how they were going to make their payments or they didn't know what they were going to do for their kids in college and this and that. But I think initially it does. I mean, it's hard to say that when you're not worrying and comfortable, that there's not an element of happiness to that and the ability to connect and help with help other people. Certainly there's happiness there. So I think it does. But if the question is, Hey, is the hundred million dollar guy happier than the $10 million guy? And is the $10 million guy happier than the $5 million guy? We haven't seen that.
1: We're talking with Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. They are the co hosts of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to Meals on the Go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I remember when I first started looking into the stock market, I was so confused. Not only what stocks or fun should I pick, but how should I actually get invested? That's why I'm excited to talk to people about one of my favorite apps, that is public.com. On public.com, you can invest with any amount of money, invest in $1,000 stocks with just a single dollar. This ability to buy slices of shares offers more flexibility on what we can add to our portfolio. And it's not just a way to invest, but also a social platform, a place you can go and discuss what you're investing in. When you invest with public.com, you're never investing alone. They make it easy to collaborate and build your confidence as an investor. You can get started with as little as a dollar. You'll even get a free slice of stock up to $50 when you join public.com. Just go to public.com slash EAI to download the app and sign up today. That's public.com slash E-A-I. This is valid for U.S. residents 18 and older subject to account approval. See public.com slash disclosures. This is not investment advice. Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson are co-hosts of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast. To date, they've interviewed more than 300 millionaires with a combined net worth of over a billion dollars. Jace, we were talking about the different types of millionaires. One thing you, I think Clark mentioned is this idea of giving back. How does philanthropy play a role in these millionaires' lives? Do you find that once they get to a certain level, they start donating a lot of money or getting involved in philanthropy?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. It's something that we've tried to focus on a little bit more lately, just trying to understand the mindset keep in mind a lot of these millionaires that come on our on our show are in their 30s or 40s. And so I think for a lot of them, you know, in terms of grand philanthropic plans, they they haven't made any. We have had several, especially recently, that have come on and discussed, you know, for example, a recent one that comes to mind, they started putting money into they didn't have any children of their own, they started putting money into all of their nieces and nephews 529s without them knowing so it's not your typical giving but they're definitely sharing amongst their family in what will be non-anonymous way but at the time at right now it is you know our our millionaire our hundred millionaire a nine figure you know he's got a very large focus on on giving away quite a bit of his money that is starting to take place in his life now probably was a little bit along the way but not as intentional as it is now Something that is very, very focused on trying to hit certain metrics and goals around that every year. I think more and more we'll see that as the wealth grows and people realize that, you know, let's say I'm worth two at 35 and I'm gonna be worth five or ten when I'm 60, I'm not gonna need it. I'm gonna give some away and trying to find those things that I, you know, going back to putting your money where where your heart is in a lot of ways, and some of them will find that. It's just at their stage we haven't seen that many but there's always there's always those that tied to the church and there's always those that support different causes they're passionate about as well but there's definitely a theme amongst millionaires that they're definitely givers
0: i think the thing that stood out to me the most is those that give and give consistently have given consistently their whole lives even from before they're millionaires so it's pro- it's been you know we're trying to ask more like jay said about hey how do you decide who to give how much to give right when to start giving which cause you care about the most. But that's been the thing that stood out to me is the people that tithe or donate, they've done it from the start. They did it when their net worth was hundred. They did it when their net worth was 300. It wasn't like, Hey, I hit a million. I hit 2 million. I'm comfortable. Now let's start figuring out where I want to give my money. I think they start thinking about it more, right? Like they realize, Hey, I have more to give and, and my money can go farther. And maybe I didn't as a percentage, when my net worth was 100,000 or my income was 50,000 i was giving less in terms of dollars but i mean the people that are givers have been givers from the start and i think that's one thing that stood out to me
1: jace talk to me about how this show has changed you as a person has it affected your financial trajectory are you doing things differently than you were 3 years ago
2: yeah i think the the biggest thing and i and i might have mentioned this before on your on your show you know, I've really honed in on my personal investment strategy, and that's I basically put a third to work in the markets in tax-protected accounts. I put a third to work in real estate, and I put a third to to work in small business. And that's gonna, it's not going to always be exactly like that, but that's kind of the way I my thought process is in terms of trying to allocate my resources. As such, the the small business is gonna probably especially the value of the small businesses I'm involved with they are going to outsize probably the other two down the road maybe not real estate I don't know we'll see but definitely just learning from all these millionaires and understanding kind of where I fall in the spectrum everyone does it differently and there's nothing wrong with that and I think we can learn and take bits and pieces from from each of them but I've I've really honed on in my personal investment strategy in terms of how to grow and allocate my resources from being involved with the podcast. Now I've definitely borrowed various tactics from millionaires that I've learned from. And now that, you know, when we started the show, I didn't have any children and now I've got two with a third on the way. So I've changed my mindset about, you know, certain things I'm going to do with my kids. And I've borrowed different tactics that we've learned from different guests that, that I'm starting to implement with my kids, even as young as they are.
1: Clark, let me turn that question around for you. Is there anything that you've learned from the mistakes of the millionaires you've interviewed? Anything that you know now not to do? I mean,
0: I think a lot of it for the person who listens to personal finance, you'd be like, well, duh.
2: (laughs) You know, like we had a guy
0: come on who was complaining about buying a timeshare. I mean, Jace,
2: Clark was almost going to buy one. (laughs) A (laughs) timeshare?
1: My parents have a timeshare and love it. So I don't know. Hey, there's people that do.
0: A lot of the mistakes people say are just like, oh, I didn't start early enough, right? Like, oh, I wish I would have started early. I wish I would have allocated more here. I wish it was spent less there. So I think if you're a naturally kind of frugal, investing focused person from the start, a lot of the times it's, hey, I got a late start. Let me say one thing that let me go back on. That's a tough question, Jace. You think about that, give a better answer. But <laughs> on, uh, on Jace's question about what have you learned, I'm going to give one that's non-financial. I remember, I'll tell you a story. We asked a guy, I think he had a net worth of a few million dollars. And we said, hey, you know, what's worth the money and what's not worth the money? That's kind of a question we would ask at the end. You know, what do you, what do you spend more on? What do you spend less on? And basically he just said, look, like this stuff hasn't brought me, it hasn't made me more happy. You know, sure. I've become more confident or I've had the flexibility, but the stuff that matters is friends and family and experiences and creating memories. And I think we've heard that over and over and over again. I mean, that's probably been my biggest takeaway since we started the show four years ago. Of course, you want to invest in your HSA and your Roths and this and that. But just the value that these people have, right? They have the money. They can go do whatever they want. A lot of them could quit their jobs and never work again with the lifestyle that they live. But that's what they value now. It's relationships with people, it's friends and family, it's flexibility to impact people where they can, when they want to. So that's been the biggest takeaway personally for me has been that non-financial
1: one. Jace, when I got into these conversations a bunch of years ago, there was a big concentration on retiring early. You've now interviewed over 300 millionaires. What percentage of them are actually retiring versus people who decide to stay in the workforce, even if they don't necessarily need to?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I'm not sure how many, you know, we haven't re- interviewed too many small. that are in their 60s, but yeah, it's definitely small. But back to to Clark's, you know, we, we've got a lot of these that are in their 30s and 40s. And I think a lot of them have intentions of doing something and maybe it's not working until 65, but maybe it's starting a business or maybe it's working in a different capacity than they are now. I think for a lot of them, it's trying to figure out when that time is and what makes sense financially to, to do so. But we've seen, we've seen a broad spectrum of those that have intentions of potentially working, you know, in a different capacity to, yeah, maybe I will just retire and travel to those that may say, Hey, I just want to get involved in some other civic activities or something, you know, earlier than the traditional retirement age. I think that whole conversation has shifted too, right? People don't. It's not no longer like I'm working till 65. It's I'm working until I have this desire to do something different, even if it's a different job, less pay, less hours, work from home or something. It's working till I do something different.
0: I kind of hate the word retirement. And I think a lot of people that come on, it's like you, you fire. And they're like, well, I'm financially independent, right? We talked about that earlier in this interview. But I think most of the millionaires that say, hey, I want to retire, Early when I hit a million, a million five, two million, five million, I think what they really mean is exactly what Jay said. I want to change my focus, right? I want to refocus myself and find something different, and figure out, you know, I'm going to do passion. I'm going to volunteer to a museum. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Like, let me see what really motivates me and drives me. I don't think it's hey, I'm going to sit on the beach and retire, right? In the, in that sense of
1: the word. Jay, one of the things that I think has changed certainly over the decades is the meaning of what a million dollars is. Is a million dollars still feel like a lot of money? I asked you that last year. You've now been doing that for a number of years. You've met a lot of millionaires. You have also interviewed some non-millionaires, people who are on the path. Does it still feel like a lot of money?
2: It's still a lot of money. And I think it will be for the foreseeable future. The purchasing power of a million dollars has definitely gone down to where it was maybe in the 90s. 2000s, right? We're seeing a little bit of inflation. Clark and I talked about that just today on an intro on our podcast that we're seeing inflation in our own daily lives, right? Everyone's experiencing that. So the purchasing power has definitely gone down. Accumulating a million dollars, especially in net worth is still a large amount of money and it's still the toughest million to get. And it's still going to be the million that takes the longest.
1: Clark, you ever get jealous as you're interviewing these millionaires? I know there have been plenty of times on my podcast where I feel a little bit of jealousy as they're telling me about their like fantastic businesses or their, you know, seven or eight figure returns. That ever happen to you? You ever get a little FOMO as you're listening to Yeah, I think
0: you do. I think you hear people that have a passive real estate portfolio, right? And they say, hey, you know, I can spend my time how I want or I started. I mean, I feel like I started early. I'm only 31. But then you talk to some of these people, they're like, hey, I started when I was 19 you know, and and they hit millionaire in their late, tw- like we've had people hit millionaire in their late twenties, you know, I mean, you're like, okay, hard not to be jealous of that. <laughs> right. So I, th- I think so. I mean, you try to do as much as you can to emulate them, but I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing what some people do and it's tough because then you, you talk to the people that hit millionaire in their forties and fifties, but in a way you're jealous of them because they have a great perspective, right. And and they've worked hard to get to the, where they, where they are. And it's just it's amazing to hear people's stories that work for it. And, and that's what they're trying to do is to become a millionaire. They hit it in 40 and 50 and it's just mindset. You know, sometimes you get jealous of mindset and goal setting. There's a lot of things. Yeah.
1: Jace, you ever get someone you interview and you're like, I want to be that guy when I grow up or that woman.
2: Yeah, there's definitely people that I've, I've taken from things from, you know, Clark, mentioned that that he didn't have a good answer for the mistakes earlier. And I kind of started thinking about that when you asked that. And I think think one of the biggest things that I've personally experienced and learned through this, and it's not just from one guest per se or anything, but just working on that muscle of risk and risk tolerance and how to think about risk and how to embrace risk. And there's things that I'm doing now that I don't think I would have ever even thought about. Or even if you asked me 10 years ago, hey, do you think you'd do that down the road? I would tell, oh, no, that's way too much risk. I would never do something like that. You know, and one of those mistakes, like I just didn't take some of the things that came in front of me, you know, in the last five, 10 years. And now I'm much more intentional about trying to take some of those risks, whether it be financial or, and, you know, obviously we've we've had a great bull market, but I think, you being able to go through that exercise and evaluating risk, and there's some that I, some things that I haven't, but most of the ones that I look back on, I'm like, I really should have done that. I didn't think at the time that I had the ability to take that risk. I always regret those and wish I could go back and and replay some of those. So I think that's the 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 main thing for me is I've gone on this you know podcast journey and learned from all these. It's not a specific guest, but it's some of that evolution that's taken place from the collective. You know, knowledge and wisdom of all the guests.
1: Clark, I feel like there's this tension, especially politically, when we're talking about millionaires and certainly billionaires, this idea of whether anyone can attain these levels. You guys have now interviewed hundreds of millionaires. How do you feel today? Is it something that pretty much anyone could do or most people could do if they had the right mindset?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is where Jason and I disagree with Dave Ramsey the most, you know, like, he'll say, oh, you know, nobody, like, there's people out there that think you can't do it. And I, I just, I don't hear that as much anymore. You know, I think, I mean, I think there's certainly people that think it, but it's so simple now. We talked about fintech. We talked about how to invest all the different tools. Now, I mean, I don't mean to say it's so simple. What's simple is getting the ball rolling, right? What's simple is starting to save you know 25 fifty dollars a hundred dollars a month whatever you can to get the ball rolling and if you would have just started that over these last 12 years I mean imagine where you'd be so I mean there's a no-brainer we've had custodian a custodian on the show that made under how much chase forty thousand fifty thousand under fifty thousand never made yeah. over 50 his whole career right and now he's in his mid-50s and he's a millionaire I mean we've had teacher we a guy referenced his father who never made over 40 and he was a millionaire So it's a no brainer. I think you just have to be intentional. But yeah, I I think it's a no brainer that people can do it. It's just about intentionality. And if you're on a smaller income, of course, you have to be more intentional, right? You have to make different decisions than the person who's making 100,000 has a little bit more disposable income. But you can certainly get, get there. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do is highlight stories of people where it's harder. Because a lot of people look at doctors and say, "Well, you make three hundred, five hundred, a million dollars. Like, of course, you got there. Or you have a dual income household. Like, it's so easy for you. Don't like stop sitting here telling me you can do it when you have a dual income household and I'm making sixty thousand dollars." But there's been plenty of people on the show that have made under seventy five thousand dollars their whole career, and have become millionaires. So it's definitely attainable.
2: I think too, just. To to Clark's point, sometimes we focus so much on that destination, right? Of, you know, the doctor's got this income or this person's got a dual income household or, you know, they've got an education and make, you know, this field makes that kind of money, right? But what a lot of people forget too, is that journey that that doctor took to spend all those years in school and residency and working 80, 100 hours. Same thing with that person that maybe went an investment banking route or a private equity route or a nursing route or all these different professions and I think just in, in collective with all the different professions that that we've had on the show, one, I think there's no one profession that is for sure you're going to be on the millionaire path, or for sure you're not. I think all professions, especially when you get to those upper tiers of of being, you know, so so good at your craft that you're going to be on the higher income scale of that particular profession and get there. I think the way that our our society is and capitalism in general, typically, I don't want to say always, but in typical cases, people's income is going to rise as they gain skills and get older and get more experience. And so, you know, for the most part, those people, they're not increasing their income year over year or getting to a level of income, you know, that's 40 or $50,000. Like Clark said, that we've known, we've had people do it and, get, and become, you know, financially independent. It's definitely possible, but there's a big journey that takes place behind the curtain and behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize or don't see all those struggles or see the risks that somebody took to write a check for something or start a business or take on the loads of debt for school to get good at that craft. And so those kinds of things that people do take, especially with the opportunities we have in this country, we try to highlight and bring that about because it is, everyone's on their own journey. And it's, it's good to understand some of those things behind that journey because we focus so much on the destination.
1: Clark, it's now been what, three, four years since you guys started this podcast. You think you'll ever get tired of interviewing millionaires? I mean, are you learning new things with each interview?
0: I think the interesting things now are the stories, right? I think initially it was, hey, how do people invest and what's the allocation and how should we do it? And now I think it's, wow, what an incredible story of somebody who you know, was an immigrant and moved and had a kid when they were in their teenage years and had to refocus and shift and do all these different things or went back to school when they got older or got a bad divorce or was in the military and just how people live life, right? And I mean, that's what's more interesting now is connecting with people and and just seeing what drives them. So I think our interviews have started to shift a little bit. I think initially in the first year or two, they were very financial focused. And now I think they're starting to be like more mindset, right? How did you get over that? Or how did you continue moving forward when you were burdened with all that debt? Or when you were only making $40,000 a year and you feel like the, the net worth and the investments were growing so slowly, Like, how did you stay motivated? So That's what's more interesting to me now, right, is is the people side of it and the psychological side of it, of of what drives somebody and just their overall story. So that part I don't get sick of.
1: I think that really sums up very well what people love about Millionaires Unveiled. I mean, we all are voyeurs. We all want to know how to make a million dollars. We want to live the quote unquote good life. But when it comes down to it, after looking under enough of these hoods, as you guys have done for us, it sounds like it's the stories that keeps us coming back and back. It's the hero story. It's the humanity, which is so darn entertaining. So I love listening to your podcast, as do I'm sure a lot of my listeners, I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you both what's up next in your life and where we can find you. Jace, let me start with you. What is up next and if people want to interact with you, how can they find you?
2: Yeah, we're just continuing to to record episodes for the podcast. I've got several things going on in my personal life. Got a baby due here within the next month. So that's exciting in my household and then yeah, you can find us at millionaires unveiled dot com or anywhere you listen to any type of media or podcast you should be able to find our show and jace are you
1: ready to have three kids
2: (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if you're ever ready but yeah we're we're ready we just keep adding them my two my two older ones play well together so it'll be interesting to see how this third
1: one comes and clark where what's up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to know more
0: yeah, I think what Jay said, it is Millionaires Unveiled, we got a website. You can call in, leave a, mo- leave a message, leave a voice recorder if you want to ask a millionaire a question too. That's something we've been trying to do. But I think coming up next for the show too, we're trying to go to two episodes a week. So we've done one episode a week on Mondays. We've got quite a bit now of interviews in the pipeline. The show is getting a little bit bigger. So trying to shift to two episodes a week and, and get people's stories out there a little bit more.
1: Is the format going to be any different between the shows or pretty much... Same for now, no.
0: Yeah, for now, no. I mean, we just got a bunch of, of interviews recorded. And so it's the same format. But that, that's something we're thinking about, too, you know, is adding something in where we add. But we've, we tried to tweak it up a little bit. You know, people will call in and say, hey, how do I stay motivated? Or, hey, you don't talk about life insurance or, hey, this or that. So we've tried to add some of that into the show just to help mix it up a little bit, too.
1: All right. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson of the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast. That's a wrap. Have you been listening to the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast with Coach Carson? My friend and former college football player, Chad Carson, talks real estate in the most understandable and relatable ways. He has two types of episodes, one in which he interviews experts that tell you the tips and tricks. This is proof of concept, real life people out there just like you and I who are making real estate work for them. And then he also has episodes where he breaks it down, tells you how to use real estate Goes through point by point and step by step how to get ahead. It is an amazing podcast. I highly suggest you take a listen. Look, if you're new to real estate, this is definitely the place to go. But if you've been involved in real estate for a long time, here's where you can sharpen the saw and learn more. Check them out at CoachCarson.com. Again, that's CoachCarson.com, it's the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. Take a listen. You won't be sorry. sweet i love having you you guys on because you always bring your a-game like you always end up having good conversations you always go deeper i I don't have to push you that much you always come up with it on your own so it's a pleasure (laughs) having you guys on
0: we're having we're having uh joe talk to us about promoting his book yeah yeah so maybe you guys should come on together i think maybe sometime in december or something
1: yeah i would love to or um Is co-author too. So Emily Guy Birkin is his co-author, but I would certainly love to be involved any way you need me or not. You'll always let me know. And it's it's a fabulous book, by the way, you should take a look at it if you get a chance. It has a lot of the great personal finance stuff in there. It's funny. And then it has, you know, some deeper thinking about things that he put in ways that even after all the personal finance books I've read, I didn't think of them that way. So it's a real nice mix of Hmm. Personal finance for everybody with some twists and a lot of humor.
0: Yeah.
2: Interesting. What are you doing? Are you full-time just podcasting
1: and uh, finance type stuff now? I have. So I still work as a hospice doctor, which is about, I'd say, a quarter time at most. Um, So that's kind of the part of my job that I didn't burn out of that I still like. So I always yeah, say it's a couple the, days a week. It's the part of my job I would do if no one paid me, it's about 10, 10 hours. So I have meetings for like four to eight hours a week. And then I answer texts and emails throughout the day, but they're really not that stressful. I can do it on my phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the podcast, as you guys know, can take up a decent amount of time. Cause I do do two episodes a week. Mm-hmm. I also work with Joe. So Joe and like, I, I do about three to five hours a week of stacking Benjamin stuff, meet with them. I'm in on their meetings, that kind of stuff. Um I've been working on my own book which is hopefully going to come out summer of 2022. So we're in the midst I'm um, my my I'm handing into my publisher. I've handed in about 50% of it and I've already got nice. another 20-25% done and then I'll just have to work on the last bit but it's it's due to the publisher by December. And so hopefully it'll come out like 6-7 months afterwards. What are you using for it? So I'm using Ulysses Press. So it's a small independent publisher. Um, and it's kind of a mix. It's really the the theme is kind of what I learned about money and finance through dealing with the terminally ill and dying. Um, but within that story hmm. is also my personal story of losing my father at a young age, as well as burning out of medicine and discovering financial independence, um, So it has kind of a flavor of all that, a lot of storytelling, cool. a lot of storytelling about my hospice patients and some of the conundrums they found themselves in and kind of what that can tell us about, you know, us people who hopefully fingers crossed are nowhere near death. Like what things should we be thinking about and why? Mm-hmm. One of that book, what's that book that's gotten popular? Um, there is the five regrets of the dying. So the, yeah, that's, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, we've couched this book as is a mix between the five regrets of the dying and your money or your life. <laughs> so hmm. the idea is that it's like a cross between those two or that's, that's how we cool. sold it. When, when I sold well, the keep book. Us posted. I'd love
0: to
1: read it. Yeah, I will definitely. And, and uh, yeah, <laughs> book, book writing is, is sometimes tough, <laughs> but where, once where that gets your, done,
0: how's your podcast going? Is it
2: growing?
1: Podcast is doing well. You care about your money.
2: Of course you do.